Welcome to episode 14 of Ask Paul Kirtley, where I answer your questions on wilderness bushcraft, survival skills, and outdoor life in general. There's lots of different ways you can ask questions. You can ask questions via Twitter or Instagram. Use the hashtag AskPaulKirtley. You can send me an email. Just put AskPaulKirtley in the title or in the body of the text so I can find it easily. Or you can use the SpeakPipe facility on my blog. So find AskPaulKirtley on my blog and there is a message system there where you can press record, leave me a voice message like you're leaving an answer phone uh, message and I get the message, listen to it and answer your question. So the first one today is a speak pipe question from Adrian Spring, again, who has left me a few voice messages over the time. He's well familiar with that system and it works very well. Um, I'm out for a walk today, by the way, in the northeast of England, um, very autumnal, very nice, quite mild for the time of year. And again, just got all the questions loaded onto my phone. Thought, thought while I was having a break, um, I can stop, get the camera out and record a session of Ask Paul Kirtley just to keep the questions um, being answered. Um, there's a lot of questions coming in, which is fantastic. Keep the questions coming in and I will do my best to answer them as quickly as possible. And here we go. Hello, Paul. It's Adrian Spring. I was wondering, is there any woods in the UK, mainly, um, that you wouldn't use for roasting meat on a fire um, due to either taste or toxins? Thank you very much. Keep up the good work. Well, thanks, Adrian. Another good question. And, um, yeah, there are some woods I wouldn't cook over in the UK. Um, you... Uh, Texas Baccata, I wouldn't cook over any of the rhododendron species, all introduced, but they're prevalent in the UK. I wouldn't cook over those. Um, cherry laurel, even though it's, it's got cyanide in it um, and cyanide is driven off by heat, um, I wouldn't cook over that. Um, and uh, another one, uh, laburnum, is one that I wouldn't be cooking over either. So avoid those uh, species uh, for cooking over in the UK. None of them are really as serious as cooking over something like candelabra euphorbia, which you get in East Africa. People have died from cooking with that, cooking meat directly over that um, on campfires. But I would still avoid the toxic species that you get in the UK. Some of the toxins are destroyed by heat, others aren't. But anything like that, I wouldn't have the, uh, have the meat or fish directly over it, just in case you get any residue. Um, and also, just in terms of flavours, you know, you want to go for really good um, embers uh, in terms of getting a good even heat to roast things. So go for oak, beech, even willow. Willow is very underrated. Keep dead willow in the round that gets uh, you a good bed of embers as well and um, be roasting over those if you want to uh, get a nice flavor a bit of alders quite nice um, or even a bit of fruit wood a bit of apple or pear or or those uh, those related species not the sorbuses though so things like um, Rowan isn't a great uh, wood, so even though it's related to apples and pears, it's in the rose family, different genus, um, I'd be avoiding that. So hopefully they give you um, some good ideas and also um, a good clear indication of what to avoid uh, when you're cooking over an open fire. 
in terms of roasting directly. It's not so important if you're boiling in a pan, clearly. All right, next question. Just open my notebook. All right, so the first one I have got here is a question from Jack, Jack Roberts. And his question is, hi Paul, I was looking at getting a down bag, a down sleeping bag, but just wondering on the cost of them compared to the weight and their temperature boundaries and are they worth it? Um, thanks, Jack. Well, that's quite a broad question, Jack, but um, basic principles you need to understand about down bags is that any sleeping bag, whether it's down or synthetic, it's the spacing in between the insulation, if you like, whether that's a synthetic fibre or a down feather, it's the air trapped in there which is going to keep you warm. So um, the lighter that material that traps the same amount of air, the warmer it's going to be for a given weight or the lighter it's going to be for a given warmth. And down is lighter for a given warmth than synthetic bags. It doesn't mean that they're better or worse, it just means that the warmth to weight ratio is different. So if you want a really lightweight bag for a given warmth, so whether it's a three season bag or a four season bag or a five season bag, um, if you want a given warmth for the lightest weight as possible, go for a down bag. The downside is that they're quite expensive. And um, that's the major downside is that down bags tend to be expensive, particularly ones that have got ethically sourced down because it's just more expensive. Um, synthetic bags are a lot cheaper. Synthetic bags are lighter than they used to be because fiber technology has come along. The best, the best ones are very good, but they're still heavier than down bags for the same weight but they're a lot cheaper so you can get a really good three season uh, synthetic bag for a hundred pounds ish um, whereas a really good three season down bag is going to cost you several hundred pounds um, so you know you're talking a factor of three or four times more expensive for a down bag compared to a synthetic bag but you're probably talking about half the weight for a given warmth um, and, that, and that's really the equation you need to be thinking about. Um, people talk about, well, down bags are not as good in the damp as synthetic bags. Frankly, if you've ever tried to sleep in a wet synthetic bag, that is also a terrible way to spend the night. You don't want to get your sleeping bag wet at all. Um, so it's, to me, it's really about the weight. Um, do you need to have absolutely the lowest weight possible um, and is it justified to spend the money to get there, to get to that weight? Um, in summer bags, it's less of a difference in an absolute terms between, you know, say a two or three season synthetic bag and a two or three season um, down bag. In the winter, um, the weight can be, you know, two kilos difference. And so that's, that's, you know, that's the sort of equation you're looking at. So the absolute weight um, difference goes up as the, the rating goes up. And the other thing really, the secondary issue is also pack size. Down typically packs smaller for a given rating than synthetic does because it just, it just compresses that much more easily due to the nature of the filling. So also if size, if pack size is a real issue, if bulk is a real issue, then you probably want to be looking at down rather than, um, than synthetic. But if you're on a budget, go for a, a, the best quality synthetic bag you can. That's my, that's my general recommendation. If you've got a more specific question, Jack, drop me a line and I'll, I'll help you out further with that. Okay, 
Next question. Knife and lost in the woods. So this is a question from Stephen and we've had a bit of to and fro. I am going to look at writing an article um, or a video to help with some of this, but the general question um, from Stephen was, um, it would be interesting if you could cover a lost in the woods scenario, uh, basic navigation and survival. Also, I would like your suggestions on which type of knife you should be carrying in case the need arises. And we had a bit of backwards and forwards, and in particular, Stephen's interested. He lives in the Scottish borders. Um, the main woodland near him is coniferous, uh, spruce and pine, and he'd be really pleased if I could do something on a lost in coniferous woodland scenario. And I will look at doing that. Um, but I think it's important to understand the general principles um, because wherever you are, the general principles are the same. The first thing um, is to stop. And I've got a video on this. I'll put a link in the show notes. It's, it's stop and that's S-T-O-P and that's for stop, think, observe or orientate and then plan. Okay, and that is a really useful mnemonic. Some people say it's too simplistic, but simplistic is good when you're stressed. Simple and clear checklists are extremely valuable when you are in a stressful situation, particularly if you've got low blood sugar, if you're cold, you want a simple framework that's robust to guide you to make sure that the major decisions that you make are the right ones. And stop is a good one for that. Same as a pilot, we'll have very simple checklists for emergencies on a plane, commercial airliner for example, um, it's not going to teach you how to fly the plane, that checklist, but it will make sure that he hasn't missed anything. So the co-pilot will go through the list, the pilot will do it, um, and then the co-pilot will get the list out, a laminated list, and go through the steps and make sure the pilot has remembered to do all of those steps in an emergency, whatever that emergency is. Um, and it's the same if you're in a difficult situation in the outdoors. Stop, think, observe, orient, and plan. Okay, and I'll put a link through to a video, another useful and relevant material on that in the show notes. So check that out, Stephen, and anybody else that's interested in um, a lost in the woods or even in the hills scenario. And the second one is um, M, plan, or just plan. Um, deal with medical, i.e. first aid issues first. Um, and this is how you prioritize. So in your planning, you want to be able to prioritize what your, um, what your uh, decisions are going to be and what you're going to address first. You can't do everything to start off with. So if you are stranded somewhere in a remote location, um, protection is the most important thing. That once you get past the immediate medical issues, um, it's the environment that will kill you first, whether it's hypothermia or hyperthermia, exposure to high or low temperatures will do you in pretty quickly. People worry about wolves and bears and snakes and all sorts of things. And you do need to be um, careful about those things in certain ways when you're traveling in places where there are uh, creatures that can do you harm intentionally or unintentionally. But the main thing that kills people in the outdoors is the environment itself, whether that's people getting too cold or people getting too hot. And so you need to have protection from the environment and that's your main priority to make sure that you're not gonna to succumb to hypothermia if it's cold, wet and windy or hyperthermia if it's very, very hot and you can't get rid of the heat. Um, then location, you need to be seen by somebody that's looking for you and you also need to be able to see people who are 
uh, looking for you so that you can signal to them if they come close. Um, so that is a priority. It's more of a priority than going and finding some food. Um, contrary to what a lot of the uh, popular Discovery Channel survival shows will, will suggest, you are not going to starve to death spending a night out in the woods or even two nights out in the woods or even three nights out in the woods. What will kill you is the environment and then if you have to spend too long out there because nobody can see you, nobody knows where you are and you can't see where the, the, the searches are and signal to them. So you need quite quickly to have something in place, um, whether it's putting a, uh, an orange jacket on, an orange survival bag over a shelter, um, putting up a, a, a signal fire ready to go in case there's an overfly um, by a helicopter or a plane so you can get smoke up. It's being seen that is a critical thing and also don't just hide yourself away in a shelter um, that's uh, insulated from the sound as well. You know, there's leaf shelters that are very popular for people to make um, these days. They're very, very insulated from sound. You get in one of those, you can't hear anybody. The, the, the shelter's camouflaged because it's natural materials. You can't hear anybody looking for you. Somebody could walk right past it and you, you wouldn't know they were there. So you need to put something on the outside that's gonna draw their attention to it. Bright jacket, bright plastic bag, something like that. Um, talking specifics there but the general point is location be seen and be able to see searchers who are looking for you and clearly you, you you're in a much better position if you've let somebody know where you're going I've also got a um, an article on leaving word I will put that in the show notes um, as well as a video on plan then it's acquisition so water food tools equipment things that you need um, this is clearly slightly longer term. Most people that get lost in the wilderness these days because people know where they're going, because search and rescue is very good, don't spend more than about 72 hours out. You're not gonna starve to death. So food and making rucksacks so you can hike out, all of those sorts of things are very, very low down your list of priorities. It's really, make sure you don't succumb to hypo or hypothermia, make sure somebody can see you, make sure you put a, an SOS sign up of some description, make sure that you can see people looking for you get some water um, and then maybe if you're out there for a longer time start to think about getting some food but that's quite low down the list and then N is for navigation and that's really about getting out of there and generally um, it's best to stay put best to stay on your route that you've told somebody rather than wandering off um, to try and find your way out of there it's best to stay with the vehicle if your vehicle's broken down um, best to stay with your canoe even if you've wrapped it on a rock and it's damaged and you can't paddle out um, best to stay with a canoe because a 16 a red 16 foot canoe uh, that you've hired um, from an outfitter in Canada is much easier to see than you wandering in the bush so all of these all of these situations generally dictate that you don't want to be wandering off um, and so navigation out of there is really very much a last resort so that is your prioritization plan um, hopefully that answers your your question, as I say, I'll put the links in the show notes on my blog at paulkirtley.co.uk. Just look for episode 14 um, of Ask Paul Kirtley. I'll put a link to a video about stop, a link to a video about plan, and a link to a video about leaving word as well. All of those things will help you if you ever do get lost out in the woods. Also, in terms of what knife to carry with you, um, a general purpose bushcraft knife is always good or what people call a bushcraft knife these days so a small knife like a mora is always good to have in your rucksack it doesn't weigh very much and you can do a lot with that um, failing that um, 
I quite like the Swiss Army knife uh, Victorinox uh, Foresters. It's got a locking blade, it's got a good little saw on it, and it's got a good few little other little tools on it. So one of those in your day pack, that will serve you very well should you um, need a knife in the outdoors. If you're carrying a, a Mora, I'd also be carrying a Laplander folding saw. They weigh less than 200 grams. You can saw through quite large wood with those, certainly big enough to make a decent fire or build a shelter, um, or at least put up part of a shelter and use something you've got with you to make the rest of it, such as a survival bag or a tarp. Um, so having those couple of tools, a little Mora knife and a, and a Laplander, or if weight and size is, is even more critical, a Victorinox Forester, um, is a really good thing to have with you. And th those would be my general recommendations. You can't go far wrong with those, um, certainly certainly not on day hikes. Um, and only really if you're going out into much wilder places where failure of equipment is abs you know, absolutely imperative that nothing fails, do you really need to be going for anything stronger than those. Um, so hopefully that helps Stephen. Um, and I will, at some point I'll do a video on that scenario so you can see exactly what I might do in the scenario you ask for. Um, that's gone on my list, but it'll take me a little while to get around to it. So in the meantime, that's a great framework, general framework for you to, to look at, stop and plan, make sure you leave word and have a couple of useful little cutting tools in your day pack. Thanks for the questions. Right, next question is from Dan. And Dan asks, um, I tried sharpening knives on the bottom of a ceramic cup. A regular tea coffee cup. It has made my pocket knife, kitchen knife and my friend's machete very sharp. It seems a great method. Um, I thought about removing the top of the cup, file down the sharp edges and bring the bottom with me in the woods as a knife sharpener. Are there any downsides to this? Um, is it better to use a sharpening stone like you do in one of your videos? And if so, why? All the best, Dan. Um, well, Dan, that's interesting. I've not used the bottom of a cup myself. The closest I've used to that would be the back of a ceramic tile that isn't glazed. Um, very, very similar material to the one that you're talking about. That works very well. Um, ceramic in general is quite good for sharpening, certainly for getting a fine edge. Um, you know, the DC4 that I carry in my pocket um, is, is diamond on one side. Um, that's very uh, abrasive. Um, it removes metal quickly. The ceramic is much finer and gives you much finer edge. So the combination of diamond ceramic is a good one. Ceramic rods, again, um, such as the Spyderco ceramic rods are very good for getting a, for honing blades, particularly ones with secondary bevels, but even just getting a, a bit of extra bite on a flat bevel, um, just right on the edge, just tickle it. Um, people talk about using the edge of a land of a window, window, but also you can use um, a ceramic rod in a similar fashion. That works very well. Um, so it doesn't surprise me that the bottom of a cup works well. In terms of taking it into the field, the problem with tiles or cups is that they're fragile. You can break them. Um, I know mugs are quite robust. Um, I would maybe think about getting part of a tile, if you want to use that type of material, get part of a tile, um, get a tile cutter, cut it to the size that you want, and glue it onto a board to make it a bit more robust. Um, that would be something, it's not something I've done um, because I've only used tiles in a home situation, but if you wanted to take that out into the field with you, you can make quite a good little, um, you could put a strop on the other side, you could stick a bit of leather on it, um, use some stropping paste with that. Um, that would be quite a good little unit to take, um, homemade, and it wouldn't cost you very much to make. Um, so that would be my advice there. Um, just 
if it's the video where I'm showing how to use uh, to get the bevel angle right, uh, if it's that video you're referring to, I never take that size of sharpening stone out into the field with me. That's an oil stone, it's combination oil stone, it's a bench stone and it's something that would be used in a fixed camp when we're running courses for people to learn how to sharpen knives and something that you might use at home. When I'm out in the field, um, I take something much smaller. Um, I will put a link to that in the show notes because again, I've got an article on portable sharpening stones and there's a load of good comments from people about what they use and their experiences as well. And um, that's a really nice resource for people that are looking to have some sort of sharpening system with them in the field that's gonna sharpen their main cutting tools like their knife, uh, the pocket knife, um, their belt knife, their ax that's gonna deal with all of those things. So have a look at that. Um, I'll also, for people that haven't seen the bevel angle um, uh, video, I will put a link to that in the show notes. Lots of stuff to put in the show notes today, but hopefully that's useful, Dan, and thanks for sharing that finding with us about using the bottom of a mug. That's very interesting. Um, contact lenses is the next one. Kevin Baldwin asks, hi Paul, um, I've been a lifelong wearer of spectacles and a keen outdoorsman. Um, I've recently been forced to wear contact lenses and I note from some of your blog articles that you also wear contacts. Yes, I do. I've got contacts in right now. Um, have you any tips for dealing with the inconvenience of inserting and removing them whilst living outdoors? Um, many thanks for the informative blog, Kev. Um, no worries, Kev. Well, I use contact lenses. I use daily disposables most of the time. Um, it, the, they, they were something I started using many years ago when I first started training in jiu-jitsu um, because when I was being thrown onto the floor, um, being thrown onto the mat, um, my glasses would fling off. And I did think about wearing a, a retainer, the sort of thing that you might wear when you're canoeing uh, on your sunglasses or you might wear when you're skiing on your sunglasses or your, or your spectacles. Um, but frankly, um, I just didn't want to have something as I went bit further with the with the um, martial art I didn't want anything near my face and um, that might hurt somebody else or hurt me and so I, I started wearing contact lenses and I started wearing daily disposable contact lenses because you know you ground fighting on the floor um, on the mat and something get you know somebody's gi gets rubbed across your face and it takes your contact lens out if you're using daily disposables they're quite cheap um, and it doesn't uh, doesn't mean I'm scrabbling around trying to find a, an expensive monthly or longer contact lens on the mat um, that's gone down in the crack and the fluff between mats or, or whatever um, or if you know canvas tatami it gets sort of trod into it and you can't find it um, or damaged if somebody stands on it or kneels on it or what have you so um, I didn't then have to worry about the contact lenses and I've always continued to use um, daily disposables the rest of the time as well. I find them quite easy. I've got no problem touching my eye, eyelid or eyeball. Um, a lot of people have problems with that. Um, that's the main thing that people have to get over when they start wearing contact lenses, but I never had an issue with that. Um, but clearly you need to make sure your hands are clean um, and soap and water is the best way to do that when you're outside. Alcohol gel is not good because typically when the way you take your lens out of the, uh, the container, you scoop it out, your fingers on the inside of the lens, you pop it on your finger, you flip it round, you, you pop it into your eye, your fingers being on the inside. So you don't want that to be dirty, but you don't want alcohol gel in there either because that's just going to hurt, it's going to sting your eye, it's going to be unpleasant. So soap and water generally before putting them in if you're concerned about 
the, the hygiene of, of doing so. Um, and then if you, if you have problems, have some eye drops with you. If you get dry eyes, I like the fact I take my contacts out in the evening. I leave my spectacles nearby in case I need them during the night. Um, why do I wear contact lenses uh, anyway? Why don't I just wear my specs all the time? Um, often I wear sunglasses and so I don't want to have to be swapping. I don't have a set of specs that are also sunglasses. Um, and I, I find it really frustrating. Um, I get quite hot um, when I'm hiking and when I'm paddling. I, I'm quite a warm person, so I get hot quite quickly. And I always find, particularly on, on cooler days, my glasses steam up. Um, and so I just prefer wearing contact lenses and you get much better peripheral vision, I find as well. Um, when I'm out tracking, looking for nature, just being out, I just find I see more wearing contacts um, rather than having frames or even lenses that stop at a certain point um, near to my eyes. And that, that's my preference. So I, I don't have a problem with it. But as I say, the main thing is just make sure your hands are clean and don't put anything on your fingers that is going to cause you a problem. And if you're cooking in the outdoors, just be careful with chilies and things like that as well, because chili oil on your hands, um, the, you know, the, 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 the remnants can last for several days. And I've made that mistake before where I've cut some chilies and the next day I've gone to put my contact lenses in, even though I've washed my hands several times, I've done this at home as well. I've washed my hands several times and it stings like hell, you know, just a tiny, tiny little bit. So just make sure you wash your hands and you're not touching anything that's going to cause you a problem. And, and that should that should work well. OK, thanks for the question, Kev. Um, next question. OK, this is an interesting one. This is from John and there's a couple of questions here, John. Uh, there's three questions. Um, I will. Tr I, I'm going to answer um, the first one, uh, really, and I will try and get the other ones done. Um, but I'm not sure we're going to have time. Okay, John. Um, first question is: You said in your last Q&A. Well, it's, it's not my last Q&A now, but it was the last Q&A when John sent this. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes to the relevant episode about minimum knowledge for someone to call themselves a bushcrafter. What kind of knowledge would you consider to be minimal knowledge, average knowledge and expert knowledge? That's a very broad question. Well, first off, John, just for the sake of clarification, I wasn't saying that you can't consider yourself a bushcrafter or a bushcraft person unless you get to a certain level of knowledge. That wasn't what I was saying. What I was saying was that um, to call yourself an instructor, I think there should be in a minimal standard of both capability in terms of the skills, knowledge in terms of what's in their brain, if you like, um, and also their ability to teach those skills and that knowledge. And I think those things should be tested and I think people should be able to say, I am at a minimum standard. Um, and I'm not saying, um, I know there's been a few comments on that, and I'm not saying that that will be the be all and end all. I'm just saying there should be a minimal standard. Like any other area of outdoor education, there are standards. Um, there are standards in canoeing, there are standards in kayaking, there are standards in climbing, there are standards in uh, walking leadership and mountain leadership. Um, in terms of what people's capability is. Um, and there, in, in canoeing and kayaking, there are not just um, leadership, 
quality, qualities that are required. So you need to have personal paddling proficiency, you need to have leadership qualities. If you want to teach people from scratch how to canoe rather than just lead them, you also need to have some coaching qualifications that show that you know how to teach people um, in that environment. And I think that is not a bad thing. I think it's, you know, it's not a good thing that anybody can just set themselves up as a bushcraft instructor without anybody checking what they know is of a good standard, that it's correct, factually correct, that it's not going to cause people problems if they try and apply it in difficult situations. Because remember, there's a really blurred boundary between bushcraft and survival as it is. Um, and some of the stuff that people teach is crap. And some of the stuff that people teach would not work in extremists in extreme situations um, people twist what they teach to suit the environment that they're teaching in particularly if they've got a small teaching environment and things start it's like Chinese whispers things get changed over time they get taught to a low standard because the teacher isn't good at the skill themselves and um, they're not good at getting it across to people and therefore the quality uh, goes down and that's what I was getting at that I think there should be a basic standard for somebody to call themselves an instructor I think you could go beyond that um, and in terms of what would be intermediate and what would be a real you know expert I think that would be a case of you know industry leaders sitting down and devising um, a schedule devising a program um, that gets people up through those levels and specifying what those levels are and that isn't about your personal proficiency that's about somebody standing up and saying I'm somebody that you can pay to learn from um, I'm somebody that's going to show you the right way to do things or I'm going to show you a way that works for you and I'm going to show you a way that works for you even if you're using it in life-threatening situations I think somebody should be checking the standard of those people before they put up a website and advertise their services that's what I was saying um, so hopefully that's clarified that John um, but it is an interesting question about the knowledge but I'm not going to answer that in, in, this, in this format because that's something that would need to be sat down, written out, thought about hard, consulted with other people um, and, and um, you know, get the input from a lot of different people so that it was a good core set of knowledge and I think it should only be a core set of knowledge. I don't think, it, you know, bushcraft is a very broad church, it's a big umbrella to put over and I think we should be very, very careful about penning it in too much. So John, I hope that answers that question. The other two parts, I'm going to try and quickly rattle through these. Um, so the second question is, I know you've heard of the Swedish right to roam. What do you know about it and what do you think about it? Um, it's, it's very good. Um, I think, um, I mean, I, I know about it. I know, it's a, I know what you can do and what you can't do. Somebody posted a link, um, a really useful link on one of the previous episodes. I will put that link in the show notes as well because um, that's a useful link, it's all you need to know. Um, it's, a, it's a good thing, but I think it needs to be respected. I think you need to be uh, respectful of the nature there and not take advantage. Um, question three, is there a place on earth you haven't visited but really want to and why? Um, I've never been to, um, I've been to lots of boreal forest, um, but I've never been to the sort of eastern end of uh, Russia where it goes into Kamchatka and those sorts of places I would be really interested to see that part of the world and I'd like to do that at some point and some of the um, 
some of the more tropical parts of the world as well um, where there is a real tradition of using bushcraft skills I would like to go and visit those places as well and and learn some more skills from people and um, I will do that at some point so thanks for the questions John sorry they're quite brief um, I try to answer them all there um, but if you if people send in one question and I can give it more of a treatment than if you send multiple questions you can always send another question at some point in the future um, this is a series that's going to go on and on and on um, because people seem to like it um, people have got lots of questions um, I know a lot of people are getting great value from this both in terms of questions that they would thought about but hadn't asked me but also questions that they hadn't thought about um, and are getting value from those answers as well so it's, it's a great format that everybody seems to be getting a lot out of I enjoy doing it makes me think about stuff as well and um, I appreciate uh, the ability to, to, to have contact with all, all of you that are interested in the same things that I'm interested in as well and as, as much as I can give you the benefit of my experience um, where, where it's uh, available right last question for today question from Stuart and Stuart asks um, I was wondering what your thoughts were on the proposals um, of rewilding Britain some farm machinery going going way over there um, as someone who lives in Scotland and loves all aspects of the outdoors I can see that large areas of our countryside have been cleared for farming and sporting activities. Um, I would love to see more native species of plants, trees and animals reintroduced and a move towards re-establishing our old native woodlands throughout the UK. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with you there. Um, the reintroduction of wolves particularly would certainly help keep the deer population down and in turn help our forests regenerate. However, reintroducing animals such as large predatory cats and bears could cause concerns for outdoor safety and put people off going out to our remote and wild places and enjoying them. Yeah, that's an interesting question, Stuart. Um, and there are several things within that. Um, first off, yes, I think reintroduction uh, of native tree species um, and recovering areas that have been denuded of native tree species is a good thing. It's a good thing um, from an aesthetic point of view. It's a good thing from an environmental point of view because it supports a broader range of species. Um, it's a good thing from the broader environmental issues that we face as well. Trees soak up carbon dioxide and um, what I find completely bizarre in Scotland at the moment and I'm literally on my way back from Scotland at the moment I've stopped off in the northeast of England um, I was in a part of Scotland the other day where um, albeit commercial forestry so it's a commercial spruce plantation um, that would have been cut down at some point but then replanted um, because it's a commercial plantation it's a crop effectively but it's been cut down early to put in wind turbines now that's all about money and that's got nothing to do with joined up thinking about the environment. You know, wind is being promoted because of global warming and climate change. But if people are chopping trees down to put wind turbines up, that's completely moronic as far as I can see. I can't see any justification for that. We need more trees. If carbon dioxide is a major issue in climate change, then surely we should be planting more trees so that we soak up more carbon dioxide. We should be limiting the amount of trees that are cut down um, in places like the Amazon and places like the boreal forest. You know, the oil, sound, oil, oil sands um, destruction of boreal forest that's going on in Alberta in Canada is an absolute disgrace. Um, the 
the um, exploitation of native peoples and the destruction of, um, uh, of jungle in Brazil and other countries in that Amazon basin in that part of the world um, is a complete disgrace um, and it's all to do with money and it's all to do with people's greed and small-mindedness and we need to get beyond that you know we need to get, and we need to get beyond a small small sticking plaster approaches like stick a few wind turbines up here this that and the other we need to stop um, damaging the environment so much in the first place rather than putting metal structures up in the environment that supposedly help um, if it means we're chopping down trees to do so that's just completely stupid um, anybody that's making those decisions is a moron and I'm quite happy to say that to their face. So yes, we should be, um, and you can tell I'm very passionate about this, we should be putting um, more trees back in places where there were trees. That will help soak up carbon dioxide and it will also help native, other native species that depend upon those um, species to, to thrive. Now, there may be an issue with deer grazing that is certainly the case, um, but again, we need some balance there. You know, some charities um, or NGOs, if you like, or charitable organisations that own land, again in Scotland, um, people like Woodland Trust, people like the National Trust, people like the John Muir Trust, um, have almost eradicated deer in some parts of Scotland in the name of rewilding. And if you're eradicating red deer and roe deer, they're native species. They are, you know, yes, okay, muntjac are an issue in places, Chinese water deer, water deer are an issue in, in places further south, of course. Um, not talking about Scotland here. There are seeker, which interbreed with the reds as well, um, where they overlap, and seeker are non-native as well. Um, so, yes, there are issues with non-native deer species, but as far as we know, red deer and roe deer are native species. They're part of the fabric of that land. Um, a much bigger problem to stopping more land being regenerated with trees is sheep grazing, generally. Um, heather burning um, for so that grouse can feed is also an issue. Um, if you're constantly burning back heather, you're never going to re-establish trees. So those are some issues that need to be resolved. Um, it's not just the deer. Um, but yes, and then if you do reintroduce um, predatory species, you need a healthy deer population to, to predate that um, population. The problem there though is that you, how do you know what the pre predatory species are going to predate? Um, in the past, yes, they hunted deer. Yes, um, they hunted other animals that were there out in nature, but that was because all that, that was all there was. Um, and ask any stalker, it's actually quite hard to hunt deer. They're pretty good at being evasive. And I would say it's a lot easier to hunt sheep. Um, it's a lot easier to hunt people's pets. Um, and that might be an issue if you have, if we introduce predators into an area, there may be easier pickings than the deer because the deer are wild and they're tough and they're already pressured by natural and have been pressured by natural selection. Um, they're gonna be a hard target compared to some other things which may be a sitting duck. So that, that's an issue that we need to concern ourselves with. Um, I don't think wolves are an issue for people. Um, I've traveled and camped in places where there were wolves. Um, th th there is no recorded incidence of wolves being a problem to campers other than in places like India, um, where, they, where, for example, there are, there are cases of wolves being rabid and going into villages. Um, but 
generally wolves are not interested in hunting people. There is no evidence that they are. There are still wolves in part of Europe, parts of Europe. Um, you know, there is no issue there with, with people being taken by wolves. Um, European brown bears are a lot less of a problem um, in terms of uh, being uh, familiarized with people than the North American species, black bears and, and grizzly bears. Um, again, we still have European brown bears in Europe. Um, there are brown bears in Finland and Sweden and, and Norway in, in the top, um, in that part of Scandinavia and into Russia. And there aren't many, um, but there are some there and they uh, are very wary of people. So um, I don't think bears would be an issue from that perspective. I just think the issue may, may be enough food going back to the richness of the environment. I mean, those open grouse moorlands are very, um, there are a lot, lot of um, the highlands of Scotland are very uh, sparse in terms of sustenance for people or for animals. And so that would be an issue potentially. Um, and then cats, I mean, if we're talking about lynxes, again, um, lynx isn't a particularly big cat. Um, lynx are very, very, very reticent animals, um, even in places where there are lynx. And again, I've been in the boreal forest in Canada and I've been in the boreal forest in northern Scandinavia where there are lynx. I've never seen one there. I've seen tracks once. Um, I know people who live in the boreal or live near the boreal in Canada who have seen lynx, but it's very rare for them to see them. It's an unusual occurrence. It's a special occurrence. When it happens, um, they're again, not interested in people. So, but you need a large enough place for them to hunt and you need some prey species for them as well. And those are the issues that we need to concern ourselves with. Um, I, but you're right, people need educating because they would potentially be scared of those species being around and about. And um, I'm not sure given how much um, domestic livestock there is around how that would work in a lot of cases um, but that remains to be seen I think um, you can but try it I think in some of these cases uh, it might be an experiment that fails terribly or it might be an experiment that works very well um, but we need to get the environment um, a little bit more sorted and a little less barren than it is at the moment before we start doing those other things I think is the impression that I get from having read a little bit about it. I'm by no means an expert on rewilding but I'm not sure anybody is because it's not, never really been done anywhere um, and it's never been done in the UK so anybody that says that they're an expert yes they may have a degree in biology they may have studied these species in other parts of the world but that is um, a degree in biology and it's studying those animals in other parts of the world. They have never reintroduced those species into the UK. So anybody that has an opinion about it, it's an opinion. Um, it's not based on any fact-based study in this particular case. Um, so I think the debate will go on for some time because people are taking one side or the other based on what they can draw from elsewhere and based on their own suppositions. Um, it's an interesting one that we'll, we will follow, but I think the more natural environment that we can have in this country and the more we can protect what we've already got and the more we can make joined up decisions about the environment rather than some of the moronic decisions that were being made um, at the moment, um, the better. And I think the more people, more normal people, everyday um, that, that don't have a, a profession involved with looking after the environment, the more people that are just users of the outside, like the outdoors, that like nature, can that have their voice heard, the better, as far as I can see. So I think that brings us to the end of 
this episode. Thank you for the question, Stuart. Um, and also you sent me um, a link to that um, rewilding, um, the reintroduction of wolves um, video. I've seen that before. It is fantastic. It's surprising. And I will put a link to that in the show notes as well. Because I think if you haven't seen that video, it's very interesting. And um, anybody listening to this on the podcast or watching this on the video, whether it's on my blog, on YouTube or elsewhere, um, go over to my blog at paulkirtley.co.uk, find episode 14, look in the show notes. There's a lot of links today to various useful resources. So it's certainly worth going over there today and uh, have a look at that stuff and keep asking the questions. Keep the questions coming in. Twitter, Instagram, SpeakPipe and email all appreciated and I will answer your question as soon as I can. So thanks for watching and I will see you on the next episode, episode 15, before too long. Take care, cheers.